If you were here last week, uh, you saw and heard about how Jesus was going around this region called Galilee, teaching and performing many miracles and exorcisms. Uh, he was healing lots of people. Huge crowds from all over the place have now flocked to Jesus, which, of course, is really understandable. Imagine if Jesus went through the ICU at Dell Children's and just started healing all those kids. Don't you think people will be really interested in who this guy is and what he's about? And so it's really striking that in the middle of this huge healing campaign, immense popularity, people coming from incredible distances to find out about Jesus, everybody clamoring for his attention, Jesus, in the middle of all that, withdraws into the hill country. Not to keep going, not to expand the healing campaign, but instead to give a speech. To give a speech to his disciples, to those who are really dedicated to following him with the crowds sitting around within earshot. In spite of what has been making him really popular really quickly, Jesus knows that his disciples need to be instructed. They need to learn what it means to follow him. They need to be taught what life in his kingdom is going to look like. There are many commands in this sermon. Many of them are incredibly difficult, even shocking. But if we're going to understand and hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount rightly, we have to remember what Matthew has already been belaboring to us about Jesus, trying to teach us about who he is, even though so far in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has actually said very little. We need to remember that Jesus' name is Jesus because it means the Lord saves. Jesus, Matthew's been showing us, is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He is the messianic king of God's kingdom. His entire life and mission are about saving sinners. Not saving the pious, saving the straight-laced, saving the sincere, but saving sinners. We saw last week that Jesus' powerful merciful response to the helplessness of the sick and the demon-possessed, that they illustrate his wider mission, that he's come to help people who cannot help themselves. He's come to rescue people who are in an impossible situation, often of their own making. He's come to show God's kindness to people who, left to themselves, are not really interested in it, let alone deserving of it. And so that's why the Beatitudes begin his sermon. They proclaim the mercy and the kindness of God toward people in terrible misery. All the commands of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to hear about over the next few months, they all should eventually drive us back to these beatitudes to be reminded of God's abundant grace for the weak and the weary. Now the beatitudes do exhort us. They do encourage us and move us to become a different and a better kind of person. But if we're going to understand them correctly, we need to understand that first and foremost, they do not exhort us. They don't tell us to become something or to think something or to have a better attitude, even though there's an element of that. First and foremost, they pronounce God's blessing on the helpless. First and foremost, they pronounce God's blessing on people who are already helpless. 
If you hear these blessings only as commands, you are not actually listening. There's eight or nine beatitudes, depending on how you slice the verses at the end about persecution. The first few pronounce God's blessings upon people who lack. That's in verses 3 to 6. The next few pronounce God's blessings on people who serve. It's verses 7 to 9. And then the last couple, or the last one, depending on how you slice it, pronounces God's blessings on those who are attacked. Verses 10 to 12. People who lack, people who serve, people who are attacked. So look at this first beatitude, uh, the one that in many ways summarizes the whole list, uh, perhaps even the whole entire Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The word blessed is actually pretty hard to translate. As it stands, uh, we often have gotten used to it. We say it as a word that we don't really use anymore. We don't run around saying, oh, blessed are you, blessed is that. That's kind of old school. Uh, It means something a little bit different than the kind of blessing that I give you at the end of the church service, the kind of blessing that a minister gives at the end of a wedding, even though it sounds like the same word in English. It's actually a different word uh, in Greek. Um, The word has something to do with the word happy, but for us, the word happy sounds pretty psychological, pretty emotional, more than I think is what is meant here. Jesus is not saying that those who are in terrible situations actually are happy or actually should be happy in the sense of feeling great about everything. That's not what he's saying. Uh, Rather, I think the, the word here means something like what we mean at the end of a fairy tale when we say they lived happily ever after, that everything is as it should be. Everything is fitting. Everything is resolving. Now, again, Jesus is not saying that those in these terrible situations need to realize that actually your lives are great. You just need to kind of think about it differently. You need a different perspective on it. What Jesus is doing, like I said, first and foremost, is pronouncing God's blessing in the midst of terrible struggle, not telling them that the struggle doesn't actually exist. In Jesus' speech, he is enacting God's blessing, much like how a minister enacts a marriage At a wedding, I now pronounce you husband and wife, much like a judge speaks to enact a verdict. You are now guilty. Jesus is speaking and therefore is enacting blessings upon people in bad situations. By speaking, Jesus is giving God's grace to people in need. And it's all summarized in the first one. Blessings on you who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's describing people who are failures, people who are inadequate, people who are weak, and they know it. Our world, and even lots and lots of churches in America, say that true happiness is for the successful, for the victorious, for the confident, for the powerful. But Jesus says that God's blessing is for those who can't and won't succeed, not least spiritually, and religiously. There's a lot of people who write off Christianity as a crutch for weak people, a bunch of losers. And in many ways, they're right. The condition of entrance to Jesus' kingdom is admitting one's failures before God and other people. This beatitude is a comfort for people who realize how far they are from where they should be, how weak and troubled they really are. 
It's Jesus' blessing of, Jesus' commendation of weakness and dependence and frailty. And before a holy God, this is really what all people actually are, no matter how successful we might be in the world's eyes. But few people want to really admit this. Few people want to really accept this. But Jesus says that his life of grace and mercy is precisely for the weak and the weary. He says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verses 4 and 5, I think we're getting a further elaboration of what it means to be poor in spirit. He says, Blessings on those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, Our world, lots and lots of churches this morning, think that we should be optimistic and happy and feeling really good and doing great. And in a culture like ours, it can sometimes be really hard to be a sad person. But Jesus says to those of us who are in grief, people who are in grief about death, grief about suffering, grief about our children, grief about the past, and worst of all, grief about sin and about injustice, Jesus is saying to you that God meets you in that grief. That God pours out His sustaining grace on those who come to Him with their grief. That's what so many of the Psalms are showing us. So many Psalms expressing sadness before God. Jesus is not commending misery. He's not baptizing pessimism. But even so, this church, our community groups, they should be safe places for sad people. We look forward together to the day when, as Revelation 21 tells us, to the day when Jesus will comfort us. Revelation says He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Look at verse 5. Blessings on the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some of us have seen how painful and nasty it can be when a family fights over an inheritance. But Jesus here is promising an even greater, an infinitely greater inheritance for those uh, who are meek, an inheritance in eternity. The word means lowly, little, insignificant, gentle. It doesn't mean doormat. It doesn't mean wishy-washy. It doesn't mean low self-esteem. It describes those who are neglected and overlooked by the world in their endless hunger for status and prominence. And insofar as this meekness is something that we actually strive for as disciples of Jesus, we know that the meekness of Jesus actually comes not from a place of, of being a wimp or being really weak, but it actually comes from a place of deep strength and confidence in who Jesus is and what he's doing. It takes incredible courage to be meek like Jesus was meek. Some of us are insignificant and lowly because of our jobs or our lack of jobs. Some of us are insignificant and lowly because of our age or because of our disabilities, because of our failures. But when you turn to Jesus, he says, you find God's blessings in the midst of your meekness, in the midst of your insignificance. The fourth beatitude in verse 6 gives us the last of these blessings upon people in need. But it helps transfer us to 
beatitudes that are more active in focus. He says, blessings upon those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now again, for the fourth time now, the people in view are people characterized by what they don't have, by what they lack. The religions of the world and a great many Christians think that God's blessings must actually be for those who are righteous. That God's blessings must be for those who obey, for those who mean well, for those who try their best. But Jesus throws all of that on its head. He says that it's those who are hungry for righteousness who can be confident that they have God's favor. That they have the kind of life that He wants us to have. Jesus says that the people who are hungry for something they don't yet have are the ones who are going to be satisfied. And so if this morning you look around at the world with all of its injustice and cruelty and manipulation, if you look at yourself with all of your apathy and your failure and your shame and your sin, and you hunger for what you and our world does not have, Jesus says God's grace is with you. God's blessings are upon you. Jesus says that you are now qualified to be my disciple. You are qualified to enter the kingdom not by what you do have, by what you don't have. You know that today. God's blessings upon those in need, the first four Beatitudes. Later on, Jesus is going to say that we have to all become like little children if we want to enter his kingdom. He doesn't mean by that that you have to be cute or innocent uh, or precocious. He means that you need to be needy, that you need to be dependent. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's what this first set of Beatitudes is getting at, the poor and the sad and the lowly and the hungry. Every command in the Sermon on the Mount is going to drive us back to this poverty of spirit. When you see the goodness and the beauty of this kind of life that Jesus fulfills and commands, you also see how far you still have to go in keeping it. But in our failure, Jesus says right here that we actually enjoy and receive God's blessing. And so in a paradoxical kind of way, you also find power to actually keep his commands more and more. So that's blessings for people in need. Now we turn to more active situations, blessings for those who serve. Look at verse 7. Blessings on the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now at the very beginning, we heard that it's actually those who realize they are not merciful who end up receiving God's blessings, those who are poor in spirit, those who don't have the righteousness they should have. And so here, we're seeing that the people who were not merciful end up actually becoming merciful and then receiving more mercy later. Those whom God has given mercy are also those who now can show mercy. Calvin says that this one is describing people who are prepared not only to put up with their own troubles, but also to take on other people's troubles. Does that mean that God uh, will untrouble you before you can help troubled people? Well, maybe, but probably not. Most of the time, God uses our suffering, God uses our own troubles to help other people in suffering, to help other people facing their own burdens. Don't doubt what God can do with your own sufferings going on right now. 
minister to others. Now again, it's so different than how our world works. It's so different than how our world defines happiness and success. In our world, instead of being merciful, we look down our noses at people. We look down at them over their politics, over what they think about vaccines, over how they parent their kids. And then we like to use other people for our own benefit. When we're helping other people, we're always just behind the surface asking ourselves, how is this making me feel? What am I getting out of this? How are other people viewing me right now as I'm helping these other people? Social media, of course, has amplified this a great deal in our lives. But Jesus, contrary to all that, says that his disciples are those uh, who are sincerely and compassionately extending help and love to the troubled. They are receiving God's blessings as they do it because they know how desperately they themselves need God's help in their own trouble. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, Our world holds up shrewdness and craftiness and being kind of two-faced and duplicitous uh, in achieving our goals. We talk one way to this person over here, and then we turn around and we, t- we act totally differently, trying to play them all off against each other and get them all to like us. But Jesus here is pronouncing God's blessings on those who strive for simplicity and sincerity and integrity all the way down to the core of their being, the pure in heart. This integrity of heart refers to more than sexual purity, but it doesn't refer to less than sexual purity. The Bible's call to sexual purity, of course, is something that our world today finds very strange and laughable, even dangerous. But Jesus pronounces God's blessings on the pure in heart. He reminds them that you are the ones who will see God in all of his beauty and glory. And so now the last of these more actively focused Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus will have a lot to say in the Sermon on the Mount about conflict and our relationships with each other. But here we already get an introduction. In a world filled with suspicion and bitterness and hostility, this world of division, of cutting people off because they're toxic, Instead, Jesus pronounces blessings on people who seek to bring peace around them. Not only peace between God and people through pointing to what God has done to reconcile us to himself and Jesus, that's a really important kind of peacemaking, but also peace between people and people. Jesus calls us not to gossip or to bitterness or to believing the worst about other people, but rather he calls us to, when we can, overlook other people's sins and wrongs when they hurt us, and when we can't do that, to proactively approach them when they've hurt us or we've hurt them and to actually talk about it with them. It starts in our own marriages, in our own families, and in our own church, and from there it goes out into the world. But of course, if you've ever spent much time and energy trying to be a peacemaker, Uh, not even for other people, maybe just in your own conflicts with other people, if you've ever actually tried to do this, you know that it can very easily cause other people to attack you. And so I think that's why Jesus now turns to blessings upon people who are attacked, blessings on the persecuted. We began at the beginning with blessings on people who are suffering, uh, which shifted into blessings on people who serve, but now we are back to suffering again 
Jesus says, blessings upon those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Following Jesus, living the life of his kingdom, is going to lead to scorn, rejection, hatred, perhaps even violence. Uh, Everybody is, of course, spiritually poor, but many people who are spiritually poor do not like being told that they are spiritually poor. They do not like being reminded of what they actually need. And so the meek and the sad and the lowly and the pure, they are easy targets for ridicule and abuse. Many Christians around the world today are suffering and losing everything, even their families and their jobs and their lives, because they love Jesus. All over the world this weekend, Christians are being slandered as being unpatriotic, as being dangerous to society. Kind of hard for us to imagine in America. Maybe because we've gotten so used to having a seat at the table in American society, so many churches, so many Christians want to be liked by the wider world. We tell ourselves that if only we're appealing to them, then lots of them will come and want to receive Jesus. Maybe they'll let us sit back at the adults' table again. Now, there is uh, some truth to this. Uh, We don't want to be jerks. We don't want to offend people if we don't have to. Uh, There's all kinds of bad reasons to be disliked by other people outside the church. But sometimes this attitude can miss that Jesus frequently is telling us to expect persecution. That it's often in persecution and suffering that the glory of his kingdom shines most brightly. Just like Israel largely hated and rejected their own prophets, so also the New Testament tells us over and over again, the world hates Jesus. The world hates those who follow what he commands. Now that doesn't mean we should run around playing the victim, looking for persecution under every rock we can turn over. But Jesus says that when it happens, and it will happen, when it happens, he says, when people slander you, when people attack you, and they say all kinds of lies about you because you're doing what I say, he says, actually, that's a reason to rejoice. It's a sign that you're on Jesus' side, the side of the cross. If Jesus couldn't escape being hated and persecuted, do you really think you will? Jesus says that you have a rich and joyful reward awaiting you in the world to come. But this reward, this blessed life of the kingdom, is not only for the future. It's also now. The Beatitudes begin and end with the same promise for the present. Jesus started by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's now ending by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All the Beatitudes in between talk about the future. There will be comfort, there will be mercy, there will be joy and satisfaction in the eternity life to come. And that gives us a great deal of hope and strength to endure through pain and lack now. But don't miss what else Jesus is saying. Jesus is also saying that the kingdom is already here. The kingdom is already here for the lowly, impoverished people who call him Lord and friend. The blessings of God, his mercy and his grace are present realities for those who see and experience that they are failures, for those who see and experience that they are desperate and dependent. God's blessing, no matter what you're facing, no matter what the storms of the world are throwing at you, God's blessing, God's grace is so much greater than what you need. 
And so turn to him again and again for these blessings, no matter how weak and weary you are. If you are weak and weary, you are in the right place. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you begin this incredible sermon of your Son with mercy and with grace. Help us not to forget that as we journey through it. Help us not to forget your grace as we head back out into the stormy life of this world. Whatever's coming this week, Lord, may we turn to you and find your help and your favor and your blessing for us in our weakness and our weariness. Make us a more merciful people toward those who are suffering and troubled around us. Help us to uh, become more and more the kind of people who are happy to find your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.